Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is David Bernstein, and I am the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. I recently wrote an article on who decides what's racist for persuasion. After I had come out publicly about my views supporting liberalism and opposing the imposition of critical race theory in society, it hit me that this view that only people of color or press people have standing to talk about these complex and sensitive social issues was really the root of cancel culture and a major problem in society. So critical race theory makes two basic observations. First, that uh, oppression exists not just in the hearts and minds of individuals, but in systems in society. And second, that this oppression that's embedded in systems is really only visible to minorities or marginalized people, that dominant classes can generally not see the oppression that they're putting in place for others. This second observation is sometimes referred to as standpoint epistemology. And it says that really only minorities have standing to define a view on race and racism against them because they're the only ones who really can see it. On the one hand, I argued in this article that we do have an obligation to listen carefully when an oppressed person or a marginalized people speak about their experiences. The victims of racism may actually have insights that we can't get on our own. But on the other hand, I can't imagine telling everyone else in society to just shut up and defer. In a liberal society, people must ultimately be able to disagree without being publicly shamed. So what's really the problem with deferring to the experience, the lived experience of marginalized people? Well, first of all, I think it breeds an awful lot of resentment. There must always be room to disagree with somebody else's perspective, which doesn't have to invalidate their experience. The second argument I made is that oppressed people are sometimes wrong, like all people. Being oppressed doesn't give you a monopoly on wisdom or even wisdom on oppression. Sometimes being too close to something can produce its own form of myopia. The third argument that I make is that there's really no single perspective of any marginalized group. Marginalized people are diverse like all people. Oppressed people sometimes have contradictory narratives. And if you think that oppressed people always have the last say on defining what's oppression, then what do you do about the fact that many oppressed people disagree with each other and that their experience sometimes contradicts each other? It's very clear that racism is still a reality in society, but we're never going to make serious progress if we shut out one set of voices and feel like we have to defer to everyone else. That's not how social change happens. 
David Bernstein's piece called Who Decides What's Racist was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. For this week's episode, I had a really interesting conversation with Amanda Ripley. Amanda is one of the leading investigative journalists in the United States. She has bylines everywhere from the Atlantic to the New York Times. And I just reviewed her book, High Conflict, where we get trapped and how we get out for the New York Times. I hadn't read her book before that. I wasn't sure what to expect, but it really was such a smart and entertaining read about how easy it is to get deeply trapped into high political conflict, but also high personal conflict, why that is so destructive and why there's some hope for how we might be able to dig ourselves out of these conflicts. We talk about everything from the deep partisan divide in the United States and how to overcome the polarization that often comes with the rise of populists to the topic of her previous book, which is how to have an educational system that actually works for kids and avoids the kind of polarization that you often get in that field too. So I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope you will too. Amanda Ripley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. So good to be here. Listen, tell me and tell the readers about the story of Gary Friedman, which I think is such a great window into conflict and just how alluring it is, how difficult it is to get out of it. Yeah, Gary Friedman is one of the world's leading experts on conflict. This is someone who has helped 2,000 people through really unpleasant disputes, everything from labor strikes to custody battles, divorces. He's written three books on conflict. He's taught negotiation classes at Harvard and Stanford. Really thoughtful, interesting guy. And in 2015, his neighbors urged him to run for office in his tiny town in Northern California, thinking who better, right, to fix politics, to heal the sort of nasty tone that had crept in, even in this little town. And as he put it, it took him about an eighth of a second before he got sucked into (laughs) the conflict in his local politics, you know, and he's not proud of it, but he lost about two years of his life and peace of mind to these petty feuds. At least they look petty, you know, to me as an outsider. And he, you know, really sort of lost the things he holds dear to this conflict. And then he realized what had happened and he painstakingly excavated himself out of it and created a different kind of healthier conflict to his credit. But it just showed me if Gary can't stay out of high conflict, then surely I cannot, but most people cannot. Like it's very magnetic. So this is one of the key stories in your book. And I think it's really one of the rare books that has a lot of story, a lot of narrative. It's, despite a serious and sometimes depressing topic, fun to read, very engaging, but it's also very careful with its ideas. So tell us what ideas this sort of demonstrates. So here's a guy who, you know, is one of the first divorce mediators in the United States, really thinks about how we have to be able to understand each other's stories and try to come to these better resolutions to deep conflicts. And then, you know, he runs for this, excuse me, sad little local water board or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. And he starts to talk in these condilicent terms, right? Like he's the new guard and he's getting rid of the old guard and they're all corrupt or evil. And, you know, he's gonna, I mean, you know, why is it so easy for somebody who has all the knowledge, all the self-awareness 
to get drawn into something like that? What's the mechanism by which we get sort of deep into the muck of conflict? Because it doesn't happen to him all the time. It's not like, you know, every time Gary does anything, he no, it almost never happens. So what were the conditions that led to that? And there are conditions that I have found pretty reliably predict that kind of ugly, unhealthy conflict. And one of them is, so every conflict has a thing we argue about endlessly. And then the thing it's really about. And until you get clear on what that is, I call it the understory, you're going to be really likely to get stuck on rotation, essentially. So for Gary, he told himself and everyone else that he was running to, you know, improve the tone, make politics less toxic, more inclusive. And that was true. But also he was trying to prove underneath that, that his whole life's work, 40 years, could be applied to politics, that the things he fundamentally believed to be true about his own worth in the world could fix this problem too. So there was a grandiosity to that, but also an understandable belief that he did understand conflict, right? And so he was out to prove something quite ambitious that wasn't on the surface. And when people in his town, you know, made fun of him or didn't do the things he wanted them to do, then you can imagine that feeling very differently, right? Then if you're just trying to do this little thing, it's like a hobby. This is now an existential problem, right? And so that is partly why he experienced it as humiliation. And humiliation is one of the four fire starters that reliably lead to really unhealthy conflict. So should he have experienced it as humiliation? No, but he did. And that's mm. usually how humiliation goes. So humiliation. Yeah. And that, that explains the disconnect where sort of he comes in and he starts to change the way that these meetings are run. And it's sort of a little lovey-dovey or it's meant to be a little lovey-dovey and sort of making sure that some people don't grandstand and all of those things. And so People on the other side may at the beginning affectionately have rolled their eyes. I mean, like, all right, you know, there goes Gary with this, you know, slightly new agey, right. whatever. And they might not have meant it in a terribly hurtful way, but they didn't realize that they were actually saying, hey, your life's work isn't worth what you're thinking. They're thinking, oh, come on, we're ribbing you a little bit. What did Gary do to trigger the other side? Because it takes right. two to tango, Right. Right. And it's not just Gary's fault. I should state the book takes a perspective on this, but I could write it a whole different way about how the other people generated high conflict, too. But the other piece of it, to your point, is that Gary started early on, even before he won the election, thinking about the situation as two binary groups. And any time humans get into two opposing groups, conflict can go sideways pretty quickly. So you mentioned he thought about himself and his allies as the new guard and the other side as the old guard. And that's understandable. It's really motivating. It gets you up in the morning. It makes you feel good about yourself. But as soon as you do that, as soon as you create two binary groups, you're at risk of high conflict. So binary groups like that, that kind of identity plus humiliation are both risk factors. And so I think the other people that he had helped oust who had served on this board, one of them for 29 years, he'd been serving in this volunteer position and he got pushed out by this random guy. You know, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good for everything you had put in place to be upended overnight. So, so this person's life work presumably was at stake as well, right? I mean, they'd spent yeah, 30 years exactly. volunteering and then they're told and say, well, you're part of the old garden, you've done everything wrong and so on. So that also feels like, hey, this is not a dispute over how much we should pay for the water charges in an affluent community where everybody could afford to pay $100 more or less a year. But it was, hey, you're saying that for 30 years, I've been ill-serving this community. 
yeah. And my whole identity in this neighborhood is as the guy who works on this board and gets things done. And now I'm nothing, you know? I mean, so yeah, it's the things we don't talk about, especially when they have to do with humiliation and fear that really are driving the conflict, but we can't see them. It's like gravity, right? It's like this force that pulls everything, but you have to be aware of it before it makes sense. So you mentioned humiliation as one of the fire starters of conflict, the sort of binary thinking. What else is there? What other conditions are in place when we go into this mode of high conflict normally? So often there are people around the edges or in the conflict who are sort of fanning the flames. This is true in divorces. This is obviously true in politics. People, companies, platforms who sort of delight in the conflict, who profit off of the conflict, who maybe more often seek camaraderie or purpose from the conflict, right? So these are conflict entrepreneurs, and it's important to recognize that we all have this potential, <laughs> and including myself, for sure, all journalists, especially. It's very easy to be a conflict entrepreneur. In Gary's case, he had an advisor who was a seasoned veteran political organizer, and she was helping him in this little campaign and applying the same rules and strategies you would use in a national political campaign in the United States, which is a hyper-polarized dysfunctional system. So when you apply those binary rules, she talked about killing the other side and winning and losing and going forward, not backwards. And you see the binary thinking and all of that. So when you apply the rules of an adversarial us versus them system, that's deeply entrenched to a little tiny town, you know, it's going to get the same results. And soon Gary started using those words too. So there's a subtle thing in how you talk about this in the title of a book, which is that you talk about high conflict as opposed to conflict, because one of the obvious objections to everything we've said so far is, look, conflict can be really productive. First of all, sometimes and often people are in an unjust position and they need conflict in order to ask for justice. And by the way, there are many relationships or political arrangements in which lack of conflict can be a problem. The American Political Science Association famously issued a report in the late 1950s worrying about the lack of conflict between the Democrats and Republicans, the lack of polarization between them. I often think about this famous German cartoon by somebody called Loriot, which is this old married couple. And on their 50th wedding anniversary, they ask each other whether there's any wishes they have. And, you know, they're sitting at the breakfast that they have every day and they're sharing this bread roll. And it turns out that the husband has always wanted to eat the bottom of a bread roll and the wife has always wanted to eat the top of a bread roll. And they always defer to each other. And on the 50th anniversary, the husband says, look, perhaps I can sometimes eat the bottom of a bread roll. And the wife says, but I prefer the top anyway. So, you know, there's something sweet and something horrifying about that, <laughs> right, depending on right. your point of view, perhaps. But the point is a little bit of conflict here could have led to better outcomes for both of them. So oh, yeah. when is conflict productive and when does it turn into what you call high conflict? And why should we think that high conflict is such a danger to avoid? One of the most uncomfortable things for me in promoting this book is that I am all about conflict. Like if you, <laughs> you know, if you ask my husband <laughs> or my very friends, nice. <laughs> well, I'm not, you know, a jerk, I don't think, but most of the time, but I like, I'm not afraid to be assertive or I like some amount of conflict. I'm not naturally a sort of kumbaya mm. person, you know? And so I was very skeptical of a lot of this. You're not Gary Friedman. Right. <laughs> well, interestingly, neither is he. Right? Yes, right. Uh, <laughs> 
going into this, I was kind of skeptical of a lot of this. And I intentionally don't use words like compromise and dialogue and peace very often in the book. And I like to think that that's helpful to readers who are like me, who are skeptical of that. But you're right. So I went into this about four years ago. I was like, look, I've got to do something differently as a journalist. This conflict, I'm just going to make it worse, even if I don't intend to. So I need to understand conflict better as a system, especially intractable conflict. What does it look like when people get out? You know, like, let's see some of that. And I quickly learned that that's the wrong question to your point. It's not about getting out of conflict. It's about getting out of high conflict. So high conflict can start small. It can actually start about anything and it gradually escalates until it becomes an us versus them kind of conflict. And it actually takes on its own momentum, like a perpetual motion machine. And everything you do to try to end the conflict typically makes it worse. Our brains behave differently. Groups become very, very important. And all these things kind of shifted out of the realm of good conflict, which can also be super stressful and heated and unpleasant, but goes somewhere. Questions get asked. There's a sense that you're not sure where it ends. Whereas with high conflict, that is the destination. You know, you can scroll through the headlines and you don't need to read it, right? Like, you know what it's going to say, because that's high conflict. So I'm still trying to understand sort of how to categorize conflict versus high conflict. So is it that sort of in conflict, I might have a demand. I might have something that's really important to me, right? I'm a worker who wants to raise, or I'm part of some identity group that feels inadequately recognized and valued. But there is a sort of goal where if I make real progress towards it, or if I reach it completely, then I'm happy to stand down. If I get the raise that we as workers have asked for and say, hey, great, right? Like no need for conflict anymore. Let's go get a beer, right? Like this is what we wanted. Uh And perhaps life is not always like that. And I'm never going to get the full raise. And perhaps I'm not going to actually go and get a beer with my employer, but there is a goal. And so therefore, if I feel like I'm making progress towards it, I can stand down from a conflict to some extent. Whereas in high conflict, it feels like actually the goal is hating the other person. Right. It becomes hard to let that go. Yeah. Yeah. And actually you don't want to let it go. I mean, I'm struck often in our political discourse by the ways in which many of my friends and acquaintances, people who are broadly on this quote unquote same side, want to have a view of the other side that's as negative as possible. And actually they seem comforted when the other side does something horrible because it allows them to hate them without any reservations or without any nuance. And when the other side actually does something honorable, that's sort of irksome. As we're recording, you know, it's a couple of days since Liz Cheney wrote I think very brave op-ed standing up to some of the things that are deeply going on in the Republican Party at the moment. And there's been a bunch of viral articles saying, you know what, she only has herself to blame. Screw her. You know, it's like, Mm. she's as bad as the rest of them. And I think that seems to me like an instance of that kind of high conflict, right? Where actually, I don't want Liz Cheney to act honorably because my view of the world is much easier if the daughter of Dick Cheney is just as bad as the rest of them. Yeah. And I think it's not just that it's easier, although it is at this level of conflict, emotion is driving the train. And I admit to that myself. You know, I remember early on in Trump's tenure, he did something. I can't remember what it was, maybe on China. And I remember having this sudden thought that actually that was not a bad idea, but not even wanting to have the thought in my head, let alone verbalize it. And I caught myself and I'm like, what is up with that? And then I realized I felt like if I gave him an inch, he'd take a mile as if we were in relationship, right? 
It's like a trick of the brain as if he and I are, you know, in conversation. Which we're not. Right? So it's a fear. It's a lack of trust. And it's easier in a way to keep things binary, bad, good. Right. But there's some really cool research that haunts me about this by Rob Willer and Matt Feinberg, where they asked liberals and conservatives if they could reframe an argument for something they believed in, like gay marriage for liberals, if they could reframe it in words that conservatives might actually get behind. And they couldn't. But if you give them choices, like, do you think conservatives would like if you framed it this way, they could pick the right one, which in this case had to do with framing it as fairness, like for patriotic members of the military should be able to get married and different arguments that tend to resonate. You know, Jonathan Haidt's work, I know you've had on the show about which kind of moral foundations resonate with conservatives. And so they could correctly and conservatives could, too, they could correctly pick which argument would resonate with liberals. So another better example maybe is climate change. If you argue it based on the purity of nature, conservatives are more likely to get behind it. But interesting, here's the thing. They found that 20% of liberals would not reframe their arguments to persuade conservatives, even if it would work better to get what they want. And that's high conflict, right? When any concession, no matter how small, this is in a, in a research experiment, right? It's not, <laughs> feels too threatening to contemplate, even when it would be in their interest. I find that to be true when you say, hey, these arguments really are not persuasive and popular to a lot of people. There's a particularly strong reaction against that among some readers and on social media where they're saying, you know, look, this is a question of justice. How dare you talk about it in these kinds of terms, right? It's like you're desecrating the sacredness of your cause by thinking about how you might put it in a way that'll actually attract support. And of course, we live in a democracy, and that means you have to think about majorities, and that can sometimes be a slightly dirty business. But if you actually cared about the cause, you would be willing to reframe your argument in the ways that makes it most likely for your cause to happen. Whereas I think it's an indication that you care more about being on the good side mm -hmm. when, when you become so reluctant to do that. Yeah, you've been captured by the conflict. So you do care about both, but you're maybe not aware of how the emotion is driving the behavior. I mean, it's basically an orthodoxy, right? It's a fundamentalism. Like to even say something or think something is a violation of the sacredness of the idea. So that's dangerous business, right? I think we can agree. So if there was one slight frustration I had with your book, and really I thought it was excellent, but it's that you don't end up talking about politics very much. And I'm sure there's a deliberate choice. So you, you talk about local politics and perhaps there's some insinuation that there may be broad political sides to it. At least I think in the minds of Gary Friedman, he's sort of the Obama figure and his opponents are a kind of Trump figure or something like that. But it really is not about partisan politics in that kind of way. I don't believe that they're identified as Democrats or Republicans on the ballot or anything like that. And then, you know, you talk a little bit about a political conflict in Colombia and so on. But certainly the defining high conflict of our society today is off the page. So to what extent do you think we can apply everything you say about high conflict to the current situation in the United States? Yeah, I think 100%. That's why I wrote the book. But what I found is if you come at it head on our conflict, you lose a lot of people because so many people are so stridently locked in on one side or another. Also, there's a lot of great books that are already doing that. So I felt like maybe coming at it sideways. And actually, there's some cool research on this by Aaron Halpern and his team, Research Emotion and Conflict in Israel. And they, what they found is once you get into high conflict like this, 
as with the Israelis and Palestinians, right? If you come at something like, okay, let's try to get along. Let's try to deal fixed polarization. Like you get some people, the people who are going to go to those like dialogue groups and so forth. And that's great, but you're really kind of losing a lot of people. However, what they found is if you come at it sideways with an analogy, people will make the connection. Now that's a gamble. I could be wrong, <laughs> you know what I mean? but people will make the connection and it can get in, like it can enter your brain because I'm talking about gang violence or divorce or an environmental activist. Because when you're in high conflict, it feels so unique to you and your country and your pathology. And you just can't believe that this is a universal human condition that has anything to do with divorce court. But I'll tell you what, there is no daylight between divorce court and Congress at this point. There is nothing different about it. Well, I think the pushback you would get, and I agree with you, I think, but the pushback you would get the moment you try to make the connection explicitly is to say, but look, you know, I can see that in most divorces, there's not one wonderful side and one terrible side, but all human beings are flawed. And by and large, if people are getting divorced, it's probably because even for the, both the heroes in their own story, they each have some real flaws. But that's not true today, right? There's a good side today and there's a bad side today. And I feel the pull of that, right? I don't think that Democrats and Republicans at the moment are morally equivalent. I certainly don't think that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are morally equivalent. So that's the pushback. So why is it that this frame of high conflict, which in a way starts from the premise, not that both sides are equally right, but certainly that both sides have gotten dragged into an unproductive mode and are therefore to some mm -hmm. extent each at fault, why would you defend but being a helpful frame in the context of a political conflict where most listeners of this podcast probably feel one side has a lot more of a good and one side have a lot more of a bad? Yeah, I guess because there are differences, particularly among the leaders, right? The politicians. I'm sort of more interested in the public. And I think the differences within each group are greater than the differences between them on a lot of issues. And I think what they have in common is that they're all human. And that that is profound <laughs> and that our behavior when we feel threatened is quite similar. Now, who's to blame more or less is an important question. And I happen to believe that particularly the politicians at the national level on the right are more to blame, as is, you know, Fox News. And that doesn't get me anywhere. You know, it's like, OK, now what? So it is important to hold people accountable. And that's not the only thing I'm trying to do here, right? Like I'm trying to help us figure out we need more conflict in America, not less, but it needs to be good conflict. Unfortunately, we're stuck with each other, right? I remember talking to a former ambassador from South Africa to the US, and he was saying that one of the things they had to do, and it was really hard, was convince people that the white people were not leaving. They were not going back to Europe. Because once you accept in your heart that you're stuck with each other, it changes things. And it's the same, by the way, sorry to beat the tired analogy with a divorce. If you have kids together, you're never getting out of each other's lives, mm -hmm. whether you want to or not. And so you got to figure out a way to fight smart. And that's true with Democrats and Republicans. We keep seeing it, right? Like we cannot solve the problems we want to solve. That both reminds me of the importance of an argument that I've been thinking about because it's a chapter in my forthcoming book, but also gives me a new perspective on it, I think, which is one of the most dangerous arguments in American politics in my mind, and one of a few bad ideas that's believed by both Democrats and Republicans, is the idea of a rising demographic majority for Democrats. 
the idea that demographic change in the United States will sort of automatically help Democrats, because I think it's what makes some Democrats play for maximalist politics, where they think we don't have to make any compromises and we can just sort of wait for Republicans to die out, essentially. And it makes Republicans engage in voter suppression and, and other kinds of things, because they feel like, hey, you know, unless we stop immigration, unless we stop people coming to the polls and so on, we're never going to be able to win. And I think for various reasons, we're both empirically wrong, and that's a different argument. But one of the things that what you just said makes me think is that actually part of the value of that story, at least to Democrats, part of the reason why it's so appealing to Democrats is precisely that it's a way of saying, no, we don't have to live with them, right? Because I would say, look, we live in a democracy. You cannot write half a population off as irredeemable bigots. You just can't. Then you stop believing in democracy. You cannot, as Bertolt Brecht said, dismiss the people and elect another. It's not going to work. But the story of this rising demographic majority seems like a fix to that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. They are saying, no, you can elect your own people. Over time, the people you dislike are sort of going to go away, or at least they're going to become so few of them that you don't have to worry about them electorally. So actually, in a way, they are going away. It's a bloodless annihilation, right? It's the fantasy. And it allows you to do things you just wouldn't otherwise do when, if you have to deal with each other. Perhaps my ex-spouse is going to have a terrible car accident and I don't have to deal with them anymore. Right, right. And that's, by the way, what drives a lot of high-conflict divorce. The behavior is there's a fantasy that we carry that the enemy will vanish from the face of the earth. It reminds me of how if you look at the research on emotion in conflict, anger is good. Like anger is all good because it assumes that you want the other side to be better. Hatred, contempt is not easy to work with because it assumes that there is no redemption and annihilation is really the only logical solution. So there's a difference between anger and contempt and hatred, even that you can measure in the research. So you think that there is a way out of high conflict, but it's not easy and it's not straightforward, but there are a set of steps we can take to actually get out of it. So I would love to hear more about that, perhaps first of all, thinking about slightly less high stakes environments, about the water board in California or about a divorce. And then perhaps we can talk about how that applies to politics as well. But if you realize, damn, I've become stuck in this muck, I'm in high conflict, and perhaps all listeners can think for a moment about areas of their own life in which they may be in high conflict right now, and you want to make amends, you want to get out of it, what stops should you try to follow? Yeah. And you don't even have to want to make amends just to lower the bar. If you just want to be less miserable and more effective in your cause, then I would argue getting into good conflict is just much more effective. So in high conflict, you'll eventually start to mimic the behavior of your adversaries to different degrees. So you'll end up hurting the thing you hold most dear, most likely. In every high conflict I looked at, that's what happened. So there's a lot at stake, even in a, a smaller stakes conflict. So one thing that is common to every case I followed in in all the research, whether it's a former gang leader in Chicago or the politician we talked about, people who successfully leave high conflict often start by distancing themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their lives. So for Curtis, the former gang leader, it was like moving across town in Chicago. So when someone close to him was murdered, he didn't immediately know who did it. All you're trying to do is slow down conflict. That's what you're trying to do. 
<laughs> and so social media speeds up conflict. So for a lot of people, it would mean changing your who's in your feed. So get off Twitter, stop watching Fox News or for that matter, MSNBC. Yeah. Put some distance between you and conflict entrepreneurs. First, figure out who they are and then put some distance between you and them. And if you're in the divorce, I guess that means, you know, whichever member of your family most hates your spouse, stop talking to them so <laughs> right. much. Don't go to them for guidance. And they often don't mean to make things worse. They think they're commiserating with you, but yeah. And same with conflict entrepreneurs writ large. But I used to say you should get off social media. Now I feel like the problem is people are fleeing social media and leaving the extremists behind, which is what happens in high conflict. So I'm not sure that's a solution, but you want to change how you interact with it and change how you understand what it does and doesn't do. And sort of, so for me, I change how I interact with people on Twitter and I don't follow people who I believe are really exploiting the conflict. So that's one thing. And then another thing is to investigate the understory. Remember we talked about how there's the thing you fight about and the thing it's really about. So get really curious about what that thing is underneath it. Not just for you, that's important, but also for the people on the other side. Like for example, most big controversial policy debates in the United States are about fear, right? But we don't talk about that as much as we do the policy. <laughs> At this level of conflict, the fear is driving the train. So let's get curious about what that is. And at least you can then figure out what you should really be fighting about. You can end up fighting about things that are not really the core issue because there's so much noise. So trying to figure out what is really going on here for people, why is it so threatening to think about immigration or whatever it is? And that doesn't make it right or okay or validate it, but it changes how you fight about it so you can be much more effective. So it seems to me that there's real resistance to understanding the understory. And that's certainly true in personal conflicts. Uh, look, perhaps when my spouse did this really hurtful thing, actually, it's not that they're a terrible human being. It's that there's something going on in their story or in their brain that gives it an explanation. Once I'm locked into a divorce, it's comforting to think that the actions were just because they're terrible human being, not because we both sort of failed to make it work. But I think there's even stronger resistance to it in journalism and in media, actually. So, you know, after the 2016 elections, there were these now infamous stories of going to diners and talking to middle-aged white guys who voted for Obama a couple of times and then voted for Trump. And every time they were just pilloried on social media to such an extent that honestly, I think newspapers have stopped running those stories. I think today... I don't know how you feel to your magazine. I think if you suggest a piece to an editor saying, hey, let's go and do a non-judgmental story about a Trump supporter trying to understand what the Ford world is and why they still stick with him today, for example, I think you'd be laughed out of court. No, you know, like even for that might get reads or whatever, you know, people are going to hate that piece and we're going to get shouted at. We don't want to do that, right? So I guess what role do journalists have in helping people understand the understory of the other side rather than being conflict entrepreneurs? And how can we try to understand the other half of a country in the United States and other deeply polarized societies when you have a price to pay for trying to do that? This is exactly how we get trapped, isn't it? Because we don't get curious anymore. We cannot allow that curiosity. Now, I do think you have to do those stories well. You don't want to create a moral equivalency or a sudden sort of deep well of compassion for people without compassion for the consequences and the victims. So you have to do it well, 
But again, journalists are captured by the high conflict. Like we're not different, you know, we're human. And I think there's this magical thinking that we think we're not like we think, oh, we're just dispassionately covering the issues. And that's just not the case, right? As we see over and over again. And so if Trump wins the next election or some version of Trump who's even more dangerous, everyone will be like, how could this happen? You know, who reads the New York Times? Now, I will say there are people out there doing this work despite all the forces. You know, Sabrina Tavernisi at the New York Times does great stories that are really complicated. When she goes to a Trump rally, she describes there's like, three or four different kinds of groups of people there and motivations, not just one. And she does a nice job. I call them dispatches from reality for New York Times readers of going in, you know, without glorifying or apologizing for the consequences of that. And that's very hard to do in this climate. And speaking of the metaphors you talked about earlier, I wonder whether her training as a foreign correspondent has something to do with it. I believe she was the Istanbul bureau chief before her current posting. And so she was reporting on this deeply split society in Turkey, where I'm sure she had more sympathy for one side than the other. But the way you approach it as a foreign correspondent much more easily is try and understand sort of both sides and give a portrayal of them, even for your sympathies might be with one. So I wonder whether that has something to do with what I agree is really excellent work that she does. Yeah, I'd love to hear her talk to you about that because I think that's right. And when I talked to her about it, she seems deeply distressed and worried about the country. And she worked in Russia for many years as well. And she sees a lot of parallels in the distrust, the belief that you can't believe anything. And that eventually, once you get to that point, only power will control the day. So she is looking at it with a little distance, which is hard to do if you've not lived uh, or worked in another country. So what's the hope for getting out of this in the United States? Do you think there's any way of getting out of high conflict here? And you know, what are some concrete steps that you and I can take, but also perhaps that our politicians could take? Is there any hope? There's a little bit of hope for Gary Friedman. Towards the end of the book, you describe how he step-by-step is trying to get out of high conflict. There's hope for many of the other fascinating characters in the book, but is there hope for you and me? I absolutely believe that we could get out of high conflict in the United States, particularly by amplifying the voices of the exhausted majority that Warren Common writes about, right? Like the majority of Americans who are not on Twitter, who are not making big mistakes about how much the other side loathes them. This is the problem is that we're currently amplifying people on the extremes. I always think that Twitter should have a little warning when you open it that says eight out of 10 Americans do not use this service because it's increasingly it's journalists, right? Activists, extremists, and bots. And so think about how that warps journalists' perception of their work. I've been saying for so many years, Twitter is not the real world. And when people say, well, but I mean, it's real people on that. Yes, the point for this, but it gives this simulacrum of being representative of public opinion, but it's really not. And in terms of the conflict entrepreneurial nature of Twitter, it's just extreme, right? I mean, something happens in the world, 10 people on Twitter shout about how it's offensive. And the next day, the New York Times writes up a story about how there's widespread outcry against this thing. And sometimes it really is true that there's widespread outcry and Twitter is reflective of it. Often it's 10 damn people on Twitter. Right. It's totally not calibrated for us to take in, like right-sized, you know, it just plays on the human, the salience with which we experience anger and fear and attacks. So it's distortion. So I think one of the things to do is raise up those voices. Like if I were covering politics today, I would not call the obvious extremists and advocates as much as we are currently calling them. 
There was actually a great story in the New York Times a few years ago about how Americans feel about abortion. And it was just so beautifully written because it just acknowledged the real complexity in the polling. If you ask the question a different way, people give different answers. People experience a lot of internal conflict about these hard problems. And it's our job as journalists to surface that complexity. And we know from the research, you know, I talk in the book about this place, the Difficult Conversations Lab at Columbia University, where they study, you know, painful conversations across divides. And one of the things they find is that if you prime people for complexity, they will have better conflict. So that's our job, I think, in this level of conflict. Just more outrage is malpractice, essentially. You know, our job is to revive curiosity and complexity in a time of false simplicity. Yeah, I mean, even when you think about a topic like police violence, it seems to me like the old model of journalism would call up in 2021 a defund the police activist on one side and then the Blue Lives Matter activist on the other side. And that would be sort of the balance. For good reasons, people are skeptical of that model of reporting. But that essentially, I think, just means that now in the New York Times, you would hear from the defund the police people and nobody else. And, uh, you know, <laughs> right, on the right, the you would hear from Blue Lives Matter people and nobody right, else. Right, nobody else. But right, actually, right. when you look at the polling, including the African-American community, People are deeply disturbed by police violence and there's strong majorities for a lot of real efforts to reform the police, to abolish qualified immunity and require the wearing of body cameras and, and a whole bunch of other things. And at the same time, a majority of Americans, including African-Americans, say that they want the same amount or more police presence in their neighborhoods and so on. But that is not what you would get on either model of journalism, most likely. Right, right. No, I agree. And I, I actually think I could be naive about this, but I think there's huge latent demand among readers and viewers for something else. Like, I think people are burning out on the news. They're avoiding it actively. The news avoidance is higher in the United States than any other country that's been studied. You know, that's not good for democracy, right? When people are literally avoiding your product, your news product, as if it's a virus, that's not good. So I think there's unmet demand and potential for some outlet. I mean, we need one news outlet that both sides kind of think is telling the truth some of the time. I mean, we cannot function without that. I was talking to a journalist from Sierra Leone, and he said to me, you guys don't have a single outlet that both sides listen to. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to just keep having alternate realities. And it was so funny because he was deeply worried about this. And yet, how often do we talk in newsrooms that I'm familiar with? There's not a lot of worry, like, ah, how can we get more conservative readers? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I just don't hear that. No, absolutely not. And I think it's very clear that outlets like the New York Times are taking the decision to double down on the most loyal readers who are subscribers, who are deeply blue. And on most things, I'm blue. I mean, on most things, I agree with them. But I think it's a real loss for American public life if the New York Times starts to take on the role that The Guardian has in the United Kingdom. Not because there's anything particularly wrong with The Guardian and not because there's anything particularly wrong with having a strongly left of center newspaper that sees the world and describes the world from that perspective, but because it was supposed to be the paper of record. It was supposed to be a paper that people across the political aisle could look to for a fair representation of reality. Now, I think there's the reputational risk here for the New York Times. I don't think it realizes how much it's standing in American life. And by the way, also its revenue is going to decline once people just see it as a newspaper of the left rather than the newspaper of the record. At the moment, it sort of ha mm -hmm. can have its cake and eat it too, but that's a time-limited proposition. But I think the New York Times is likely going to be fine. There is a space in America for a bigger and in some ways better guardian. But I don't know that American discourse is going to be fine.
you just can't function with two totally opposed sets of facts on everything. I don't know how you get past that. Like to me, it's a foundational problem. And I don't know how we move forward as a country without fixing it. Now, since we are not going to fix it, let me change the topic. Really? I was hoping. <laughs> Come on, it's only 10 a.m. So I haven't yet read your book on education, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about it. So you looked at why it is that some kids do incredibly well in these international tests to see how proficient they are at reading and math and why some kids do really poorly. And also why it is that this is not a static picture, that Finland was not actually doing all that great 20 or 30 years ago, but now it's sort of at the top of many of these lists, or at least it was when you wrote this book. What did you find out to just reduce it to the bottom line about when education works and when it doesn't? What do you need to do in order to make sure that kids do learn to read and do math as well as possible? Yeah, well, it was sort of the same formula because there's a ton of really amazing data now comparing education outcomes around the world, mostly from the OECD, but not only from there. And yet it just doesn't seem real. Like we can't visualize it. So I ended up following American teenagers who spent a year in public high schools, in homes, in countries that have these really amazing outcomes. In this case, Finland, Poland, and South Korea. And it was kind of like with High Conflict with this book. It's like, follow the people who have been to the other side, who have been through the woods. They can see things that no one else can see. So those kids helped me really realize that a lot of the debates we were having as journalists, as policy people, as nerds in, in Washington was just totally disconnected from the things that kids are actually influenced by, which is particularly in high school, primarily their peers. So there is a culture in all three places. Now they had their pros and cons for sure. <laughs> like Korea in particular is, is, is like not working smart when it comes to education, uh, but, but is working very hard. But the biggest, most intangible difference is that school is serious in these places. It's like taken seriously, it's respected. And there's a consequence of that, particularly in Finland, but also elsewhere where teachers are respected. Like the same way we respect pilots and surgeons in America, like literally. And that's partly because they shut down all their education colleges and made it much harder to get into education college. So there's a different, totally different sort of system, but it's very respected. And kids pick up on that. Families pick up on that. You know, you can say education is important, but if you don't act like it, kids are the first to notice the difference, right? And so there's a rigor not just in the curriculum, although that's important, not just in the teacher training, although that's important, but in walking the walk and prioritizing critical thinking for kids above almost everything else. So that's interesting, but you're saying actually it's not what's the size of a classroom, what's the pedagogical approach, is it state-funded or are there sort of charter schools? It's really the whole culture around education. How do you change that culture. Because the natural inference from that is, well, cultures are pretty static and we're really hard to change. And so if we have a bad culture around education, then we're screwed. But part of your premise is, no, actually, these countries have changed the culture of education. It's not necessarily static in this kind of way. It's not just we Americans, so we don't like education. That doesn't seem true. So what would it mean to change the culture of education in these ways? Well, you know, this is where I think we've kind of come full circle. It's like you have to rebuild trust in these institutions. You have to make education college serious. Like, look, I have seen great teaching now, okay, many times in person because of the reporting. 
And it is the most intellectually, emotionally dazzling job there is. Like it is not for the faint of heart. And it's not just hard because it's like, oh, kids are a pain. It's not that. It's not like, oh, you're a saint because you're a teacher. It's like being a CEO. I mean, it's not different. And so if we work backwards from there, right, what if we treated it like that? And so I actually think the most obvious entry point would be at the university level where we'd select and train and give coaching to teachers, because that's where we're really different from these countries. It's not actually in how much we pay teachers, although there are some states that are just paying teachers atrociously atrociously low salaries. But in Washington, D.C., where you and I are, teachers can make six figures in their 20s if they're performing in high-need schools and performing well. And on average, teachers in the United States make more than most countries and most teachers in the OECD. Yeah. Now, I think there's a little bit of a problem that lawyers and doctors also make way more money in the United States than in other countries. And my friends who are doctors here just make multiples of my friends who are doctors in France and Italy make. And so I think part of the problem is it's not about where the pay of teachers is. It's that they just earn so much less than a lawyer or a doctor. And you're not going to change that. Because you're not going to start paying teachers $300,000. The only way to change it would be to pay lawyers and doctors less. And that's a right, whole other proposition. For, you know, yeah. <laughs> right, me too, but that's a hard thing to achieve. So what are we doing wrong at the university level? What are we doing wrong in training these teachers? Education colleges are basically writ large, I'm generalizing, which is always dangerous, but they accept almost anyone who applies. Often it's people who are athletes who are majoring in education because they don't know what else to major in. I'm exaggerating again, but like that is often the case. It's not always the case, but they will take anyone. A lot of the classes are very ideologically driven. They're about philosophy and things that people in education colleges want to teach as opposed to really rigorous coaching, which is what teachers need. Most American teachers come into a classroom with no classroom management skills. So think about what that means for discipline, for racial inequities. It is hard to manage 25 little kids in a classroom and there are tricks and tips and there is an art to it. And so you should be learning from the greatest minds in the world on how to do that if we took education seriously. So let's talk about the ideological aspect of this. As you're saying, you know, in order for our society to respect teachers, schools can't be seen as ideological breeding grounds. But I think both because of the teachers' unions and the association of the Democratic Party, and at the moment because of a real push to introduce elements of critical race theory and so on to the classroom, it feels like actually we're polarizing the debate about education more and more. How can we get out of that high conflict? Yeah, it's painful to watch, isn't it? And I think you're just going to see more and more of this, like the politicization of things that really don't need to be politicized. And there's going to be a lot of casualties and most of them will be kids. So it's painful to watch. I do think some of what we have to realize is that when you have an adversarial us versus them dynamic that predates all of this, as we do in many of our cities between unions and management, that kind of corrodes everything else. Like In other countries, they have strong teachers unions, countries that do much better by equity and by other measures, but there's not this us versus them relationship to the same degree. So the way unions came up in America, the way universal schooling came up in America, the time when it did has really tainted all of those institutions. And so I would argue you need to kind of reboot them for what we need today. What we need today is not teacher union leaders who are going to war every day. Like that is just not helpful and not serving anyone ultimately. And not all of them do that, by the way, but there needs to be much more trust. And so how do you rebuild trust, right? And some unions are right to distrust, by the way. So it goes both ways, but I think there needs to be a real investment 
in rebuilding trust in our schools. And so we could talk about ways to do that, but I think that's the next frontier. Another part of the culture of education is sort of expectations of achievement. You know, I've been really struck by a few moves in the last months where in the name of racial equity, standards of achievement have been abolished. One part of this is standardized tests. And we've had some interesting articles on persuasion by Rob Henderson, for example, who's grew up in foster care in very challenging circumstances. And it was actually a standardized test that made him realize his potential. And he went into the army, I believe perhaps the Navy, and went to Yale. And you can actually listen to Rob tell his story in the first voice at the beginning of a podcast with Tyler Cohen about two weeks ago. So standardized testing is one part of his battleground, but increasingly part of his battleground is just grades. So the school district in San Diego has found that because the number of kids who were failing on their grades was higher among African-American kids than among white kids. Most African-American kids, of course, did not fail, but there's a higher percentage of them that failed. They have now abolished grading in the public schools in San Diego. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's so funny, right? It's so ironic because the reason we started doing all the standardized testing was because of people freaking out, rightly so, about the disparities where black and brown kids were being just totally left behind. And there was no consequence for schools. There was no pressure on them to do better, to even measure what was happening. And now the way it was done, unfortunately, was again, not rigorous. So these tests that were developed were cheap tests. They weren't very good. They weren't very smart. They weren't done the right way. And so, of course, you get pushed back to that. And then you end up dismantling the whole system. And eventually, who are you actually serving there? Like who is serving? Because, you know, if kids still aren't learning (laughs) and it's disproportionately black kids or Latino kids, who are you serving? And the problem is it's a hard problem to fix. It turns out just putting pressure on teachers and schools to get better test results doesn't fix it. Like most teachers want kids to learn more. And so the trick is that craft, like how do you help teachers teach better, especially reaching kids who are hard to reach in Finland, for example, and other countries, teaching is a much more about peer brainstorming and strategizing and working with each other and watching each other teach. And it's much more collaborative in that way because they realize this is really hard. We're not going to figure it out just in isolated classrooms. So again, it goes back to that core seriousness of the profession and of the work. And this is high conflict, right? If you just want to win on standardized tests and make them go away, well, that's easier in some ways might make you feel good, but you have not fixed the problem. I think that often problems and conflicts get solved, not because anybody in the situation starts doing something different, which I think is a really hard thing to do, but because the overall constellation changes. Perhaps you're in a deep conflict with your ex-spouse and then suddenly your kid gets sick and you just have a reason to collaborate on this and you start to realize that you both are very invested in your child and that you care for them. And so perhaps in the process of battling a disease, you might get back together, but sort of start to respect each other as one kind of metaphor. I think perhaps in politics, you know, some other conflict comes along. This happened for a little while after the culture war of the 1990s in the United States with 9-11, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Suddenly Mm -hmm. the lines of conflict shift and for a little while it sort of brings people back together, you know, perhaps as part of a new conflict. What would be a way to recover a new narrative of us, a new story Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. us in a place like the United States 
will it require something traumatic like high conflict with China? Or is there some hope that we can retell our national narrative in a way that overcomes these deep divisions? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Like you need a shock and you have to be on the lookout for it though. Like that's how you get out of high conflict and at this level is there's some kind of shock that destabilizes that self-perpetual motion machine. And the thing is you have to have people in place before that who can seize that moment. So the pandemic was a shock, clearly. Hard one because of how long it took to ever turn that into a positive from a conflict point of view. But if you have people in charge who are conflict entrepreneurs, you're never going to be able to seize that opportunity. So some of it is like chicken and egg problem. Like how do you elect the people who are not conflict entrepreneurs who have an expansive definition of us? How do you do that without that common enemy or shock? Right. So for me, I think that's where journalists can be helpful in figuring out who are the people. Like I'm much less interested in who's centrist as a politician at this point. And I'm much more interested in who is a conflict entrepreneur and who is a conflict interrupter, who is doing this differently, who has an expansive definition of us. Can we create those rankings? Can we raise that up? I think a lot of people want politics and this conflict to be different than it is. So how do we help people? get there because there will be another shock. There will be violence, almost certainly more political violence in the US, right? So there's two paths from that. One is double down and then there'll be more violence and more violence and more violence. And one is seize that as a saturation point, which is what everyone who's gotten out of high conflict has done is sort of hit bottom, reckon with what has happened and try to interrupt some of those feedback loops. Amanda Ripley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Asha. Good to be here. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.